Um, hello. We are now very excited to welcome Raphael Honigstein to the show. He is a German football expert writing for The Athletic, um, an author and noted and guest on the uh, BT Sport Goal Show. Um, well, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. We're very, very happy to have you here. Um, so in your, in, your, in your job of, of, of being a journalist and among other things, um, you have... You, you cover both German and English football. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a theoretical question, um, but if you had to, if you, if there was a, a choice and you had to watch only Bundesliga or only Premier League um, for the rest of your life, <laughs> which which would it be and why? It's an easy decision for me. I don't think uh, anyone watches leagues; they watch their team. And my team doesn't happen to be in the Premier League that I play in the Bundesliga. I'm from Munich. Uh, from the red side of town, so it's a no-brainer. <laughs> you're, you're very, um, you're very, uh, make a point of, of not saying who you support. So we'll, we'll leave that in okay. the air. Configure that. Yes. Um, <laughs> for, for for what reason, other, other than, than than club loyalty, um, is there something about about the leagues that um, that the, the, you, you prefer? Is it is it because in fact the Premier League is sort of characterised as being over corporatized and 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 German and Bundesliga? Is characterised as by some people as being more focused on 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 fans and and more like more more to, to the original um, original roots of football. What, what do you make of that? There is there's something in that. I think as far as the uh, fan experience in the grounds is concerned, I think the Bundesliga is still a little bit more in tune with what the um, with the crowd want. Um, you know, the, the ability to stand, the ability to have a beer, the ability to have lots of flags, choreographies. Um, these things have been lost in the Premier League and maybe they're coming back slowly. Um, so in that sense, the Bundesliga is, is perhaps a better experience. But then, you know, I also watch football because I like football. I like the game. And while I appreciate a good atmosphere, I also want to see the best teams and the best players and the best coaches. And not every Premier League game will deliver that, but at the very top end of, of the Premier League, you'll see football that at this moment in time, uh, I don't think can be beaten or can be touched by, by anyone else in Europe. I don't think that there are two better teams in European football than Liverpool and Manchester City at the moment. That might change uh, if their respective coaches leave. But uh, right now, if you want to see the best teams in the world, you watch those two teams and they happen to play in the Premier League. I'm talking about the differences, though, between the two leagues. Why do you think some players um, from coming from Germany, such as Jerome Boateng, fail in the, fail in the Premier League, but then players going such as Sancho and Reese Nelson, who have gone to the Bundesliga, do, very, do, do quite well? Why do you think that, that that is? Well, I think you can easily find um, players on both sides who make a move and it works out and players on the other side who doesn't work out. I don't think it's really anything to do with the leagues. It's more to do with where these players find themselves. I mean, a guy like Ampadu is, is a great talent, but still hasn't really played at all for Leipzig. I don't think it's because it's the league. It's he is in a team that's really, really strong. Lots of players in his position and he just can't get onto the pitch at the moment. Uh, I don't think that reflects badly on him. I don't think doesn't necessarily mean that Leipzig are a better team than Chelsea. It's just a situation. Boateng went from being a guy that really didn't get on with Mancini to being a back-to-back Champions League finalist and a World Cup winner. Uh, it might have happened if he'd played somewhere else as well. So I, I wouldn't read too much into that. Um, what is true, I think, is that for a lot of young English players who perhaps see that their path is blocked a little bit at the very top end of, of the league, they then can take a step to the Bundesliga, like Jaden Sancho, to Dortmund, where they might go down in the sense of the direct comparison between Dortmund and City, but they don't really go down in um, the amount of game time and the, the kind of challenge that presents itself. I mean, Sancho would not be Sancho now if he hadn't been very, very smart 
and move to a, a team that is very strong, but not too strong, and move to a league where he was going to get really top games every single week, including the Champions League. All these things would not have been possible for him at Manchester City. If he'd played maybe at Everton, it would have been a different story. But at Manchester City, I think he had to make that move, and that was very smart. But um, I think we really have to look very closely at every single player and the exact move rather than draw generalised conclusions about the two leagues. Do you think, though, there are certain skills that kind of... Because the Premier League is known as the probably the best and quickest league in the world. Do you think there are certain skills that are transferable between the leagues? Yeah, I think, I mean, the Bundesliga and, and the Premier League are probably more similar to each other than the Premier League and any of the other big European leagues. It's, it's not France, it's not Spain, it's certainly not Italy. So this is probably the closest in terms of resemblance. The game is pretty quick. The game is pretty much based on uh, being fairly direct. There's a lot of uh, pressing teams, there's a lot of counter-attacking teams. Uh, it's quite physical, maybe not as physical as the Premier League, but then... Um, it's probably still more physical than, than the other leagues that we just mentioned. So it's a pretty good um, fit, I think, for these players. And the proof is that, you know, all the Bundesliga sides, they want these English kids because they feel these guys will be right for, for the Bundesliga. You don't see a lot of French teams, you don't see a lot of Spanish teams going after, uh, you know, young English kids because perhaps they're not quite so sure how they would fit in in a, in a different game. But for the Bundesliga, these guys, with their pace, with being very direct, with being um, good in one-to-one situations, physically strong, well-developed, even as teenagers, some of them, um, that proves a good fit. And that shows you that the leagues are not a million miles away when it comes to um, the playing style. So is it just individuals that that how based on how the they will do in the league? It's just an individual set, set of circumstances rather than a specific style. Is what you're saying? No, it's both. Um, I mean, there is there is a template of players that are in demand in the Bundesliga, and that is strong, fast, tricky, attacking players, um, and they happen to be at the moment the likes of Sancho, the likes of uh, Karl Hudson Odoi, who Bayern really wanted. Uh, there might be one or two others in the pipeline. Uh, there's uh, Eddie Nketiah, for example, who Dusseldorf wanted and very nearly got. So these type of players are being produced at the moment in England. And the Bundesliga feel that they're right for the league. Uh, every club would like to have a Jadon Sancho. Um, and not every Italian team uh, would necessarily have space for a Sancho. Not every Spanish team would have space for, for Jadon Sancho. That way, but when it comes to then actually succeeding or not, then you really have to look, you know, what team is this? What manager do they have? Are they struggling at the moment? Is he happy? Is he settled? Is he a smart guy? Is he a guy that is completely lost because it's a different country and he has no friends and he's really sad looking, uh, you know, being alone in his, in his house the whole time? Um, to give you an example, I mean, Renato Sanchez did not fail because the Bundesliga is different um, or is, is a place where a Portuguese player couldn't succeed. Um, he had a hard time for the same reason he had a hard time when he went to the Premier League is because he just wasn't very happy and was much happier playing uh, back in, in Lisbon where he had his friends and where he knew everyone. And some players will be like that. Uh, and it's not really a reflection so much on, on the league, but more about the individual circumstances of the move. I think it's interesting that that they are that the Bundesliga and the Prem are the most um, most similar in terms of styles. I, I think that that's an interesting point. Um, but to move on to a more I think serious issue, which has been has been um, relevant recently with 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 um, with rise of rise of, of anti-Semitism and racism. Um, there's obviously been notable attacks in in Germany, which which are horrific. Um, but there are the when when people think of Jewish clubs. Um, there are sort of two that come to mind, as, as far as I know. There's, there's Ajax and, and Tottenham. Um, people, pe- people, they, they, this is less like less publicised. It's something that I only found out when I was researching for this. Um, was that there, there's a history of, of certain German clubs, and and the most notable, I think, is Bayern Munich. Um, mm. Could you enlighten us? What what is what is that that Jewish history? What I mean, what, what is it about? So Bayern Munich had a um, Jewish president. 
uh, had Jewish founding members. Uh, one of the founding members, uh, John Elkan, is the guy who built the menorah that's sitting outside the uh, parliament in, in Israel. So they, they have a Jewish history. But of course, like many things in Germany, you know that history didn't have a happy end, as it were. And after the war, a lot of these things were forgotten or kept quiet because people were uncomfortable. They were even uncomfortable because they were on they were the victims and didn't want to once again, you know, present themselves as a target or they were uncomfortable because they were on the wrong side. They were the perpetrators and also didn't want to talk about it. So the buying story specifically was not really widely publicized for many years. And it took the ultras of the Bayern, fan, uh, Bayern fans to really rediscover uh, Kurt Landauer, that president, and rediscover some of that history. And then books were written about it, et cetera, and Bayern are now much more open about that. But it is still history because right now we're not in a situation where uh, Jews play any prominent role in uh, in the football uh, in Germany. So it is something that is a little bit distant and probably doesn't have much impact on what's going on at the moment, which um, has more to do, I think, with xenophobia and with sort of more overt racism towards people who just look a little bit different or have the wrong skin color uh, for those um, you know, who who uh, spout these racist uh, sentiments. And uh, the Jewish story is a little bit in the background at the moment. Do you think that the the owners of or the the leaders of, of at the top of Bayern should be more proactive in, in acknowledging um, this history? I think that was an argument that could have been made uh, sort of ten, fifteen years ago. But since then, they have embraced the history. Um, if you go to Bayern, see the uh, training session, you will see a statue of Kurt Landau right next to the uh, number one pitch where the where the professionals uh, play every day. Um, Kurt Landauer has uh, a street named after him that leads to the to the stadium. There might be one inside uh, Munich city center soon as well. So it took him a long time, I think, to to embrace that part of the history. But now they're very active, and um, uh, you know they're frequent exhibitions about the subject in the club museum, and uh, they do, they do quite a lot. Um, but I think at the same time. Perhaps there is this awareness that you don't want to push it too much um, for fear of a negative reaction or, you know, maybe feeling that you don't want to go too far and to politicize it too much. So and I, I can understand it to a certain extent because, you know, we are talking about things that happened uh, in the 1930s in, in Germany and it is a relevant story. It's a sad story. But it's not one, I think, that can really occupy a football club that much in 2019. Um, so I can understand what it sort of limits to how much you want to talk about this uh, on a daily basis. So obviously there are clubs that are much more proactive in acknowledging their history, like, like Tottenham as a, as a Tottenham fan. Um, I'm not sure that that's true, actually. Is it not? I think Tottenham as a club don't, don't acknowledge the history as at in all. The, the fans do, though. And and the fans yeah. sing Yedami, which is yeah, obviously controversial. Because the fans are still there. Hmm. But it, <laughs> and I, I mean, it's true that the, the, the club, I think, I, I personally, I think that they should, um, which I, I guess is, is, I don't know. Um, but when, when it comes to the, to the, the, the Y-Word issue, um, it, Spurs fans obviously sing it, and I, I, I'm quite pro it myself. Um, what do you make... Of of this of, of the, the phenomenon of Tottenham fans singing and, and and the reaction to it is 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 as some people say is yid a, a, a race hate word as some people put it. Well, I think that really depends who you ask. I mean, personally, um, to me, I didn't grow up in the UK. I was never called that word. I you know I wasn't beaten up in school like like people of my age were or in the tube. So, to me, that word doesn't have the negative connotation at all. To me, it's a completely neutral connotation and a connotation that only comes if you say army or if you say a swear word that shows where you're going with this. I think as a word to me, to my ears, it's completely neutral and it can be whatever it can, whatever you want it to be. Just like the word Jew can be whatever you want it to be. Most people who say it who are not Jewish, there's often a negative connotation to it. That doesn't mean that the word itself is wrong or is a hate word. And just, I have to stress just to my personal 
um, uh, you know, relationship to that word, I don't have that negative uh, feeling at all. So I don't quite get it why, why there is that much sensitivity, but I do understand it's different for many people. Now, when you ask me, you know, should they be singing it or not? I think my point is really that people should be allowed to sing whatever they want about themselves. If they want to define themselves in a certain way, then I don't think anyone else should tell them, no, you can't do that. Uh, I understand there's an argument that even non-Jews say it and it's a bit strange, etc. But I think still, if you want to define your identity, or if you want to use that label for yourself, I don't have a problem with it. And I don't think, I don't buy into this idea that it creates more negative uh, reaction. I think the negative reaction was there to begin with. And I don't think the negative reaction, sadly, would go away if people stop singing. So I think it's a bit of an easy target, as it were, or an easy imagined solution to think if we just stop calling ourselves that, then people won't make the hissing noises and talk about the gas chambers and all that stuff. I, I don't quite buy it. But I understand why, and that's why I mentioned it before, I understand why Spurs as a club don't really like all that thing because they feel it brings out more negative uh, reaction to them. Is, is it just context though? Is, is, is that your point? Is it is just how the word is said, not the individual word itself? For me, yes, because as I said, I, I never had that word thrown at me in a negative way. I um, didn't grow up in, the, in this environment. I mean, uh, depends a little bit on the pronunciation, but uh, you know, Yid, if it's a little bit longer, is just Yiddish for, for Jew. And it doesn't have that negative connotation for my ears because uh, where I grew up in Munich, in a Jewish community, people would talk to each other, addressing each other uh, that way um, in a very friendly, normal, normal manner. So I totally get it, though. Why, and I have this discussion many times with people who've grown up here who really treat it and, and feel it is a very negative and hurtful word, and they cannot disassociate themselves from those negative feelings, and that's why they're uncomfortable with it. And I get it. I can just say, for me, I don't have that feeling. I mean, there, there are people who say that um, the the people on on the other side of this argument are just doing it for sort of um, for tribal reasons. Like a Chelsea fan will be against it, or an Arsenal fan will be against it. Um, do you think do you think that that's the reason? Is it, is it just party? Sorry, party that's, is it just tribal um, rather than actually being concerned? I think it's very diff difficult to delineate where sort of the banter stops and the the real Jew hate starts. Um, I think only the person shouting will know, you know, if he's actually somebody who dislikes Jews or if he just thinks calling Spurs F in Yitz is just fair game because they call themselves Yitz. So I can curse at them, right? Um, it's not a it's not a clear cut scenario where I think it gets it gets very clear and then it gets very dark is when it goes beyond that and references are being made then to real things in real life or real history about Auschwitz, about Hitler, about the gas chambers, then a line is being crossed. If someone is just taking the word and, and, and adding a swear word to it, I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. But I, again, I understand why lots of British guys wouldn't because they would have heard similar things being said to them in a very clear non-football context as an out-and-out insult. So I'm perhaps more ready to be lenient and to be um, you know, erring on the side of, of um, caution, as it were, than people who would have heard that, uh, that kind of technology much earlier in their life in a non-football context. It's very hard to try and make everyone happy. And... It's funny because we're talking here like you're you cover football in many different ways as journalism, but also through the BT Sport and punditry. How hard is it to be a neutral for these things, being a fan of a certain team? How hard is it to stay a neutral when being a journalist? So I'm I'm lucky because all the Premier League stuff, um, even though people might not believe it, I, I really don't care who wins. I can watch it 
as neutral as possible. Of course, now with Klopp having written about him, um, you know, having clearly a sense of sympathy for him, um, I cannot pretend that I care absolutely not at all whether he does well personally or not. I do. I want him to do well. But if he leaves, I think my relationship to Liverpool is just as strong or weak as it is to Everton or Arsenal or to Spurs, which is to say kind of non-existent on an emotional level. And that makes my job quite easy. Um, when it comes to covering Bayern, uh, and it is Bayern, it's no big secret, um, I'm one of those guys, and that goes has nothing to do with football, I think there are always two extremes in fans, or two types of fans, shall we say. One is the fan who only sees the good in his teams and his clubs and will not hear any criticism and will defend uh, the club to the hilt. Uh, right or wrong, it's my club. The other guy will see the flaws uh, and will be a little bit more critical, perhaps, than he would be of other teams because he is close, he looks close, he expects a lot. And he's often disappointed because he wants his club to be the best club. So I very much fall into the, the second category. And I don't think anyone's over the years ever um, accused me of being pro-Bayern with a bias because, if anything, I'm probably extra critical of the mistakes they make, you know, hiring the wrong manager or the manager making mistakes or getting the wrong player. So I'd like to think that it hasn't really impacted my critical facilities to write what I think is is right and needs to be written. So you mentioned Bayern and, and that will that will move on nice nicely and um, on to the next bit. Um, about now right now is, is that there's a, a vacancy I guess you can say even though there it is currently held by the, the caretaker manager. Um, there's a vacancy at the Bayern job of people talking about and people linking all sorts of people all sorts of rumours flying around um, as to who could be the next um, next coach. Um, there have been some people who have been suggesting that um, Pochettino is is I mean as, is is uh, is going to go to Bayern and, and he's the favourite as a Tottenham fan that makes me quite worried. <laughs> um, can you can you uh, calm the fears? Is 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 Poch going to go to going to go to Bayern? Well, I, I don't know if he's going to go to Bayern because even if we assume that Bayern like him, and I think that that much is true, we don't know what situation both Bayern and Pochettino find themselves when it really gets down to it in March, in April, when that decision will have to be made. Bayern by then might have, uh, might be feeling that uh, Hansi Flick, the assistant coach, is doing such a great job, we can't get rid of him. He has to, has to have the job, at least for another year. Or they might feel, you know what, German-speaking manager, even if he has a, especially have a Bayern background, like Eric Ten Hag would have, the Ajax coach, that is our deal solution. And as much as we like Pochettino, he would have to learn German. He would have to get used to the Bundesliga. He would bring six or seven people, all Spanish speakers. We don't understand what these guys are talking to each other in the dressing room. As much as we like him, maybe it's a little bit too risky. So, yes, they like him. Yes. Uh, they've looked very closely at him, not just now, but in the past. Whether that actually uh, means that he's going to go there, there are so many factors involved. Uh, I wouldn't worry about it now. Um, I think, and this has nothing to do with Bayern, I think that Pochettino, as far as I know, hasn't decided yet that he wants to leave. And until he makes a decision, everything else is is superfluous because... He's only going to start talking to Bayern and Real Madrid, etc., if he decides he wants to leave. And so far, I, as far as I know, he hasn't decided yet. And if anything, what I'm hearing, whispers, rumors, is that he will try to do what he couldn't do this summer, which is to really have a new team being created and have that, uh, that rebuild and that revolution that the team needs. But, of course, he can change his mind, especially, I think, if Real Madrid come calling, uh, more so than Bayern, who would probably be a little bit further down his personal list of, of clubs to go to. So, another manager that was being linked to the job until, I think, today he got announced as the chief global development of football FIFA was Arsene Wenger. Um, I don't know if any of that was true or not, but... The, another manager who could become vacant soon is Unai Emery. 
Um, I was thinking on the other note, not towards Bayern, but for Arsenal, a man like Nico Kovac seems like a very Arsenal-like replacement. What do you think right now of Unai Emery and what could Kovac be the man to replace him? Okay, so first of all, Wenger, to to um, put that story to bed, um, it's been documented that there was a phone call between them, but some of the cover uh, coverage and the reports that then assumed that he would definitely take over the job, I think really jumped the gun. It was my information, that's what I wrote as well last week, that uh, he was not really considered one of the candidates. He has since said there was been an approach, but I was never a candidate, so... I think it was overcooked uh, in terms of the uh, realistic chance of him going there, especially now when they Bayern hadn't made up their mind at all that they wanted to bring in somebody now. Uh, that decision would have only been made after the Dortmund game, which Hansi Flick won to earn the right to keep coaching Bayern. Una Emery, um, I think, is a, is a decent manager, but perhaps not quite... The manager Arsenal need at this point. I think they're looking for a coach that comes with a huge authority, that can uh, recreate a winning mentality, that can sort out a club that has been a team that has been drifting. And I don't think he's quite able to do that. Uh, I understand why the club want to support him, want to give him as much time as possible, but I just don't see that being changed anytime soon and I've seen all the problems that he has will just continue until the club decide you know what we'll have to make a change. Niko Kovac is an interesting proposition. I don't think he'd be the right one for Arsenal because his game is is a fairly defensive one. He had success with with Eintracht Frankfurt playing counter-attacking football, uh, playing real sort of underdog style, uh, very strong defending and then very direct, very aggressive, counter-attacking, but not really the football, I think, that can play with this team and probably not the football that Arsenal fans would, would expect from him. So if I were Arsenal, um, it wouldn't strike me as the natural guy to come in and do what Emery perhaps um, is failing to do, which is to give... Arsenal, this, this strong attacking identity and a strong tactical idea uh, that they're lacking and have been lacking for quite some what, quite some time. Someone who is a coach at Arsenal, actually, though, Per Mertesacker, who you are quite close with. You have a book with him, um, the big friendly German. Um, it just he's actually currently a, a coach at Arsenal. Could he be the man to take Arsenal? Like, obviously, you're quite close with him. And bias aside, do you think he has leadership qualities? He definitely has leadership qualities, but it's a misunderstanding to think that he's a coach. He's the head of the academy. He doesn't actually do any coaching. He picks the coaches who are doing the coaching. So he's not even the, the, the coach of the coaches. There's going to be another guy uh, in that position. Um, so he's more of a CEO, if you will, of the whole youth department. He has um, some coaching badges. I think he's doing extra ones, but um, he cannot be considered a coach at this moment in time. Strong leadership, yes. Strong personality, yes. But uh, this Arsenal team need a much more experienced coach or they need someone who, like Mikel Tata, has first-hand experience what it is to be in a coaching team with a world-class coach. In Pep Guardiola. And that's why I think the Ateta link that was very strong before Una Emery came in will come up once again the moment that it becomes clear that Emery will leave. And I think that's probably not that far away, even though Arsenal as a club are saying, no, no, we're, we're backing 100%. Um, there have been a few, speaking of ex-players who have been talked about going into management, Murasaka, you've sort of said that that isn't really a possibility, but it's sort of in terms of German German players who play for Tottenham, um, there's been a few high-profile high examples, there's been more recently there's Lewis Holtby, who is, I guess isn't that high-profile, um, I liked him personally, if that's relevant, um, but there's, there's Stefan Freund, but I think the biggest example is Jürgen Klinsmann, um, and this moves on to, to, to Pochettino because, a, a bit, because... Um, 
there were some rumours about Jürgen Klinsmann saying that if Pochettino were to go, he would be um, he'd be keen on taking the job. Um, is is this a, is this a possibility, or and, and do you think that he'd be he'd be he'd be a good person to replace Pochettino? I'm sure he'd be interested. Uh, who wouldn't be? Um, I mean, it's a great job, and Klinsmann, with his Spurs background and 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 coaching, would would love to do the job. But he's just been appointed board member at Hertha BSC. Uh, he's involved there. That wouldn't probably stop him if he had an offer, but maybe suggest that he doesn't necessarily see himself coaching anytime soon. Um, there are constant rumors linking him with jobs. I think he was linked with the Ecuador national team job, but all these things are a little bit um, vague. And I think for Spurs, it's tough to go from Pochettino to the next manager, whoever it is, because Pochettino has done such an amazing job in completely turning around what it means to, to play for Spurs, changing the mentality, changing the playing style, changing absolutely everything. And if I'm Danny Levy, I want to find a guy that is as close to Pochettino as possible in terms of his tactical ideas, in terms of his personality, and why Klinsmann shares some of the the traits and some of the characteristics of Pochettino in terms of you know driving through a, a process and being a bit of a trailblazer and a bit of a maverick. I don't think he would necessarily have the tactical acumen and uh, an impact that Pochettino has had. So I'd be surprised if if he were to get the job, and it wouldn't to me. Look, that look like the most obvious guy to to succeed in. You mentioned um, Pochettino has kind of brought the best out in players. Um, however, Spurs right now aren't doing the best, nor Arsenal. Who do you think currently, though, at the moment, if it was for a new manager or just as a player, who do you think is the more attractive club right now? Arsenal with their history, or Tottenham with the, the manager and whatnot? Interesting question. I mean, different players go to clubs for different reasons. Some, For some, only the money is important. For others, only the trophies are important. The smart ones, um, the ones who go furthest and have, uh, you know, the, the best sort of uh, mentality to succeed, they are looking at the whole package and they want, first and foremost, a coach that helps them to play better. A coach worthy of the name. You know, coaching means helping others to perform. Now, if you're young, if you're a guy just you know coming through, you look at Spurs, you look at the track record of the players that have been uh, made into stars there over the last few years, and you think, you know what, Pochettino has done it. He's taken these guys, you know, these guys that nobody knew, and he's made them internationals, he's made them Champions League finalists. Uh, this is a guy that that helps helps players to to play well in a team that works. Okay, this year might come to sort of a to a natural end, but I think that's more to do with the team rather than with Pochettino. But everything he's done so far suggests that he can do it again with with new players. And I think that was, to be fair, Spurs' idea that they were going to get five or six new players, and Pochettino would make them into stars just as he had done before. It didn't happen because they couldn't shift those five, six players that had to leave, first of all, to free up those spaces. If I'm a young player looking at Arsenal, I think it's very difficult to, to have faith in Inuna Emery to really help me succeed because all I really know is that the, the most expensive, maybe technically most gifted player is, is not playing. Um, that the captain, you know, has just been basically fired or will, will not play again. Um, it doesn't doesn't really strike me at the moment as a very attractive proposition. But it can change. If tomorrow Arsenal decide, you know what, next season, Thomas Tuchel is coming in. He's going to create a new team, create it in the image of Arsene Wenger, but with, actual, with more coaching, with more defensive stability suddenly becomes very interesting again. So this is just this very moment, November 13th, that would be my answer. But things can change very quickly. 
talking about someone that needs to bring the best out in them. And obviously Unai Emery and his relationship with Meza Ozil. So Ozil was left out of the German squad for, as we know, different reasons to do with Turkey and whatnot. But and now he's being left he's out of the Arsenal left, squad. He was never left out of the Germany squad. He's had some issues, let's say, he, he, between he, German. Yeah, he decided after the World Cup that he doesn't want to play anymore for Germany. But he's also now being left out of the Arsenal squad. Do you think he doesn't work in the Premier League, or just Arsenal aren't using him well? I think it'd be rewriting history to say that this guy never played well in the Premier League. Um, I think he's done some pretty exciting things in the Premier League. Um, of course, things haven't worked out in recent years. I think with Emery, I'm not 100% sure if the decision is just a footballing one or if, as he hinted and as I think a lot of people suspect, it's more of a political decision that they want to move him on. They want to free um, space as far as the uh, the payroll is concerned. That you know he's seen as somebody that they have to get rid of in order to invest big into maybe two or three Mesut Özil's who will give you more for for less money. But the problem is you can do all these things if you're winning, if you're playing well. Then nobody asks any questions. But what? What's happened to Emery this year is that Arsenal have gone a step back. And then when you don't play your most expensive player, people will ask questions and people will wonder, you know what, the kind of football we're playing at the moment, how bad can Mesut Özil be that he doesn't improve the team and the football that we're playing at the moment? So now Emery almost had to, I think, go reverse and try to find a way to reintegrate Mesut because the team on the whole just aren't playing enough to completely discard him and say, you know what, he's not going to play for me ever again. It's a bit of a mess. Um, it's a bit of a mess. And it doesn't really reflect well, I think, on his on his coaching to come up with a different message almost every every week. You know, one week he's in, one week he's out. I think it's it's a problem for his own credibility as far as the dressing room is concerned because it doesn't send a clear message. Uh, it's muddled. And I think that kind of muddled thinking has been one of the problems for, for Emery in a wider sense as well. Um, you, you, I mean, you, you like, like, like a lot of Arsenal fans, have sort of been quite um, sceptical of Emery. Um, do you, who do you think that could be the, the solution? Do you think maybe, as you mentioned, you mentioned Thomas Tuchel, do you think he's the solution? Or, and, and, and is that likely to happen? I think a lot of managers would improve this Arsenal team. I think Emery is is decent, as I said before. But if your ambition is to be, once again, one of the best teams in the Premier League, then you need to have one of the best coaches, not just in the Premier League. You'll need to have to one of the best coaches in the world because the guys above you have the best coaches in the world. So it's probably not going to cut it to appoint a guy who's like a top 30 coach or top 25 coach. And then you have to see, you know, who's available, what is, the, what is the package, what can you offer, what kind of investment uh, can be done. I think the sooner they make their decision, the better, because if you wait too long, if you only pull the plug on Emery in May, then your best options will have already made different decisions. Uh, Thomas Tuchel, I just picked out of thin air as a theoretical name, who I think would work well there it could be it could be a Rangnick it could be a Ten Hag I think there are a lot of managers who would do really well with this team or at least begin to improve this team uh, with Emery I'm just very doubtful that he can really deliver that sustained progress that Arsenal really need um, we're just talking about um, Mezzo and how he used to be quite good but he's kind of lacked that in the past few seasons. Do you think the Premier League style has changed? And we talk about managers now like Klopp, who you mentioned, and, and Pep Guardiola, who have now built a new style of football. Do you think, one, Pep gets a lot of credit for it, but do you think um, Jürgen Klopp gets enough credit for the stuff that he does to change the game? Yeah, I think they both get, get amazing um, 
recognition for for what they're what they're doing in, in different ways. Um, I'm not sure that you know it really has too much impact on what Mesut is doing himself. I think he could still, with a coach that gets the best out of him, still perform at a pretty good level. Maybe more in a Guardiola type team than in a Klopp team, which is very direct and I think doesn't really have a position for a guy like him. But you know, Mesut was about to reinvent himself. Um, after the World Cup in Brazil, where he was playing slightly deeper positions, played for Germany in, in a number eight role, played even in a number six role um, in the run-up to the Euros. And I thought that that might be the future. But I think that's a position where, unless the whole team is, is geared towards playing that way, you cannot, you cannot put a Mesut Özil there. What I mean by that is Ilka Gunnuan works for City but probably wouldn't work in that defensive midfield position for any other team in the Premier League because he'd be just physically not strong enough would be overrun but because the whole team play a certain style you can then have that style of player in that position and it works so it's down to the management it's down to what kind of what kind of game you want to play um, I think Klopp to answer your question, um, is doing an unbelievable job this year. I think it's hard not to, not to call it that when you get 34 points from 12 games. It's uh, it's barely believable, really. Is is this their year? I don't know if it's their year, but their their chance is certainly the best they've had, certainly since 2014 with Rogers, but. If you look at the sort of underlying strength for the team, is probably the best chance to have in the history of in the in the Premier League era, because the team functions so well. The the problem I see or the, the danger is when it comes to their crazy congestion with the Club World Cup and uh, all these games, uh, late December, January, February, they have to come through that without the front three um, sustaining any real damage. I think you can replace um, any of them over a couple of weeks. If one of them really picks up a serious injury or if two of them are out at the same time, then even Liverpool will struggle. If they keep everyone fit, then they have an amazing opportunity this year. So you're talking about Klopp and you obviously have a, a good relationship with him. You wrote a book about Klopp, um, bring the noise, trans different, different titles for different languages that translates differently. Um, but a lot, lots of opinions about about Klopp before pre-Champions League final which I, I personally I, I try to forget um but pre pre that, that Champions League final was he was considered some some people may, maybe on, on the internet a lot called him a fraud because he hadn't, hadn't won a trophy um this this um opinion has, has sort of has sort of go, go, gone into Poch as well and and what do you and and, and people, people obviously call Poch a fraud because he hasn't won a trophy um do you make what do you make of this sort of um way of evaluating success as just being number of trophies or nothing? Well, first of all, I think if, you know, anyone calling Pochettino or Klopp a fraud, um, that's sort of, that's kindergarten type debate. And I don't think you should even engage with that. Uh, when it comes to how you evaluate managers, I think it is, it is a conversation to be had. The way I look at the work of managers is you look at the resources. You know, somebody take Spurs, a team that were the uh, a, a byword for underachieving, for being mentally fragile, for never making the top four uh, sustain um, on a sustained basis, you know, maybe one year, one year not. And overachieving um, four times in a row, achieving more than the budget would suggest, achieving more than the real player potential, the real player quality at his disposal would suggest, then I think it'd be foolish to say, well, he didn't win a League Cup. Yeah, well, so what? I mean, Juan de Ramos won the League Cup. Is he a better manager than Pochettino? Absolutely not. So even if, if Klopp would have lost that final, and it's possible you can lose finals, Klopp knows that better than others, would Liverpool as a club felt that, you know what, this guy... He just doesn't cut it. He's not a good coach. We're just going to get somebody who wins finals. No, because 
first of all, you have to get there. And getting there is the real, is the real challenge because you, you can get lucky one year, you can win something, but to do it consistently like Klopp does, like Pochettino does, that is the hallmark of a, of a great coach. And we don't even have to agree or, you know, people on the internet might have different opinions, but they should ask themselves this. If those guys would become available tomorrow, how many offers would they have in world football? A dozen. And those people know, you know, and those people would never say, well, you know, at Spurs, he didn't win a, uh, an FA Cup. We can't go for him. No, it's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. Um, talking about these two specific managers, last season in the Champions League, to both of their final runs, Tottenham beat Borussia Dortmund and uh, Liverpool beat Bayern Munich. Um, what has happened, though, within the last couple of months almost? Because now Tottenham obviously now lost 7-2 to Bayern Munich. Is there a comparison now between these two, three team, two, two teams? Like, is German football and English football... Now miles are different now, or because what on earth has just happened between now and then to, to have that huge change? Well, I mean, the Champions League throws up throws up results, and these are knockout competition results. And you know, Spurs destroying Dortmund and then getting destroyed by Bayern doesn't necessarily mean that you know Bayern is now a much better team than Spurs, and Spurs are a much better team than Dortmund. These things change very, very quickly. What doesn't change is sort of the underlying quality. And in Germany, most people were saying, you know what, Bayern, that was a bit of a freak result. They played well, but actually the first half an hour, they didn't play well at all. And if they get unlucky, Spurs win that game and Bayern fall apart because they were close to falling apart. Dortmund um, played some really good stuff at Wembley then fell apart in the, in the last 30 minutes to concede two, two goals and they were basically out of it. So let's not read too much in individual, um, into individual ties. What is more important is sort of where's the real quality. And the quality, even though Bayern had a zero, had a nil-nil draw at Anfield last year, everyone knew, I think, that Bayern under Kovac that year and Liverpool under Klopp, that wasn't an even match. Liverpool were a much better team. This year, I think Liverpool would probably still be ahead, but maybe a little bit less so. But it makes a difference because the difference is, if you want to you know, have a wider discussion, three years ago, Dortmund were trained by, coached by Jurgen Klopp and Bayern were coached by Pep Guardiola. Right now, Bayern are coached by Hansi Flick and Dortmund are coached by Lucien Favre. It makes a difference, you know. The, the teams are good, but if you have the two of the best managers coaching you, you have a better chance to make it to Wembley to the Champions League final, as those two teams did, than when you have coaches who are okay, but maybe not quite the geniuses that were there before. Can, can managers really make that much of a difference, though, in terms of how 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 yeah. how, how, how well a team could do? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, as a Spurs fan you'll know more than, than anyone else. I mean, you look at this team, and I still look at this team, and you know, look at last year or maybe even 2016 when this was probably the best Spurs team in terms of the performances, and you see a lot of players who, if you take them out and put them in a different team, I don't think they would be nearly as playing as well. I mean, Pochettino got so much out of them because they had a system. He had a system that really, really worked. Klopp, getting... The kind of football out of players like Henderson, Wijnaldum, Robertson, none of these players by themselves, Liverpool fans would have thought, you know what, are these Liverpool players? Not sure, not sure. But it works because a good coach improves players and a good coach has a system that brings out the best of players. And it was very clear when, if you think back to the Dortmund team of Klopp that won the double and then went to the Champions League, all those guys who left that team suddenly looked very, very ordinary. Kagawa at Man United, Shaheen at Liverpool. Um, there were a couple of others which I can't remember now, but 
the story was always the same. I mean, people are thinking, you know, these players, there's nothing special. I'm sure if you take Harry Winks, you know, from his best or even Ericsson at his very best and put him in a different team, probably wouldn't have looked half the player. So, yes, managers at this level, they make a huge difference. They make a huge difference, especially when they come up against managers who are really, really good. If you go back, let's say, five, six, seven years, where the average managerial quality in the Premier League was still quite poor, maybe you can get away with being a pretty average manager because your players will save you. That's what happened to Wenger uh, at the later years. You know, there was just enough quality there to always tick along and at least finish fourth, even though perhaps his coaching methods had a little bit been outdated by that time already. But then once you add Guardiola, Klopp, Pochettino, then it's too much. Then you cannot get fourth anymore, even if your players are really good, because these guys just have a bit more. So it, it makes a big difference. Arsenal kind of trickled away a bit, but some teams, as you're seeing now with Tottenham, they will go from Champions League final to now 14th in the league. And you look at what happened just now with Bayern Munich. One game, they lose 5-1 to Frankfurt. The next, they're, they're, they're beating Dortmund 4-0. Is it, obviously, it's not, that can't be just down to the manager. So, kind of, what is going on, though, with Bayern Munich there? Well, I think this was, this was really mostly down to the manager. I mean, the 5-1 was, was Niko Kovac's last game. Uh, they fell apart. Okay, they had a man sent off after nine minutes. Uh, that excused some of the poor defending. But this was a team that subconsciously wanted the manager out and played accordingly. I mean, if you don't believe in your manager, if you don't believe in your boss, then you will just do a little bit less or you will second guess everything or you will have self-doubt or you will believe that he doesn't really help you perform. And this team really wanted a change. And... You know, even if they're good professionals and all want to win all the time, that kind of feeling of, you know what, maybe we'll have to lose here until people see that we need change. That once that is inside a team, inside a dressing room, then as a manager, you're you're basically gone. And it happened. It happened with Arsenal as well at the end. With um, Pochettino, I don't think we've reached that stage yet. I think the players, by and large still want to play for him, want to be successful. It's just that I think one or two are just a little bit gone. And the stale and that freshening up that was necessary just hasn't happened. So individual games, we shouldn't read too much into it. I agree with you. But what I'm trying to say is that the 5-1 was not an accident. I mean, this happened happened for a reason. And it happened um, with a lot of foreshadowing. It was bound to happen. And it needed that explosion for things to change. And now Bayern are much happier that they've got somebody who deals with the players in a different way and also tactically just has made one or two tweaks that have made a big difference. I'll just to give you a brief example. I don't want to go on forever about this. Um, after the 4-0 game against Dortmund, Joshua Kimmich was asked, you know, what, what did Flick do? You know, he only had three or four days. What, what can you really realistically do? And he said, yeah, you know what? We had a really strong defensive structure. Everyone knew when to press, who to press, and how to press. Now, you'd think that this is sort of, this is, you know, ridiculously banal stuff that every, every team should know. But by saying that, he really told us that under Kovac, they didn't have those strict and very clear defined structures. And even the Bayern team, who is the best team player by player, can't play without structure. So just making that little bit of difference made a big difference. I mean, continuing on this sort of manager theme, um, let me try this sort of thought experiment sort of situation. Um, people say that the one of the, one of the big um, positives about Klopp is that he's a very passionate manager and very... Um, very nice person, as as, as you, you said, as you, you you try to find a person that, that didn't like him, and, and as far as I know, you haven't found one yet. Um, but the, this 
this sort of focus on 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 uh, interpersonal relationships rather than tactics. Do you, do you think that means that that in 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 theory, if you were to put Klopp, let's say, in a lower 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 league situation, he could handle it better than let's say Pep, who might be more um, might be more um, basically needs better more more high high quality players rather than being a, being a motivator. I think it's a um, it's a mistake to think that Klopp is is first and foremost a motivator. It's it's a big part of coaching, you know, to to motivate players and to make them want to run. But unless they know where they're running to, it'll quickly stop. I mean, you can only tell one guy to run against the wall once and then drops dead. You need to help him to run in the right way and give them a feeling that, you know what, all this effort actually helps us to win. Because every manager says, you know, you have to run today. You have to fight today. That, 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 that doesn't cut it. But what is true, what is definitely true is that Guardiola's way of playing is so complicated and so complex and so demanded technically that it can only be played by a very select few of players. And that makes it more difficult uh, and at the same time, always unfairly, in my view, opens itself up again to the criticism that he can only do it with great players. It's seen as a negative, but actually, because he is a guy who cannot play that kind of football with players who are not able to follow those instructions and to be technically so strong to do it. Klopp has shown at Mainz at Dortmund with pretty average players now with better players, but still some players that probably you would consider individually not the best players in the world, that he can create something collective that works and plays fantastic football. But Jola's approach is, is different, is more complex, more complicated, and probably wouldn't work at Mainz, probably wouldn't even work at Dortmund. But I wouldn't hold it against him because he's in a position like, let's say, Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg to say, you know what, I can't work with average actors. I need the very best actors for my film. But you know what, I can afford them. And I don't need to have poor actors. Um, and it's going to be a brilliant film. So I don't see that as a criticism. I just see that as a reality of his idea of football needing those type of players. We look at how certain teams are doing, and we mentioned Bayern. Just to finish off here, they have a lot of quality players still, though, and Serge Gnabry being one of them, he obviously has an amazing game, which all Arsenal fans love to see, even though he's left the club now. What did was did what Arsenal wrong for letting Serge Gnabry go, and how big of an impact do you think he could be in the future for Bayern Munich and for the German national team, actually? Yeah. Um, well, he's having already a big impact for both Bayern and the national team. He's, he's a regular on both sides. He's a guy that's very versatile, can play through the middle, can play on the wings. He um, has pace. Um, I think there's a realization both at Bayern and at uh, the national team that pace and uh, being direct is, is really the most important or one of the most important skills that you need in those positions. And that's why he's in the right place in the right time. For both sides. The reason why it didn't work at Arsenal is because A, you know, at the time there were half a dozen players in his position and perhaps being a little bit younger, but also being a guy who's come through the own uh, youth system since he was um, 16, maybe didn't make him as attractive. I think there's always a temptation for any coach to play the more expensive guy, the guy who's come from abroad, the guy that he bought rather than give a chance to uh, this kid that's been around and it's sort of in and out and injuries and he doesn't quite progress and you don't really know is he ever going to make it. So I wouldn't necessarily criticize Arsenal for, for that. But what I think what went wrong is two things. One, I think they, they really must misunderstood his talent. And we're far too late and too hesitant in offering him a new um, a new contract. They missed the boat on that. Um, and the second thing is, I don't think Wenger was doing enough in terms of really helping him to succeed. Wenger was very hands-off, 
Wenger trusts players to come up with their own solutions. He's very, very um, helpful in giving them time and space and encouragement, but not necessarily the detail. And some players are happy with that. Others need more detailed coaching. And it was no coincidence, in my view, that Gnabry only reached really the next level when he had in Julian Nagelsmann at Hoffenheim a guy who sat him down and said, you know what, Serge, I see that you're making your runs from to deep positions. You start running here and then you have 40 meters still to run. Run a little bit later or put yourself in different positions so that you can take up pace and you get the ball into feet. Little things, tiny things that we perhaps think are already in every footballer's brain, but actually they're not. They need to be fed and need to be repeated and need to be really harnessed. And Wenger wasn't really doing those things towards the end of his, his coaching career. And Gnabry needed, needed that bit of extra coaching. And I think those two things went a little bit wrong, but I wouldn't necessarily say that Arsenal, you know, made a huge mistake with him. I think it was just one of those situations where it was a good idea for, for the player to leave. And um, you couldn't really see the progress happening if he had stayed. So it was a good decision. I think focusing on, on Arsenal's failures is, is, is a good place to end. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for coming on. We've really enjoyed it. Um, go, thank you. Go, go listen to go listen to him on, on the beauty, Rafa on the Beauty Sport Girl Show. Buy his books. I recommend them. They're very good. Um, <laughs> thank you for coming on. Thank you. Come on, come on, come on.